Dean Bible Ministries presents the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Robert Dean, pastor of West Houston Bible Church. These and other Bible lessons are available from www.deanbible.org. Now let's listen to our lesson from God's Word, the Bible. How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, Sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started this evening, let's make sure we're in fellowship. So we'll have a few moments of silent prayer to give you the opportunity to make sure you're in fellowship, ready to study the word, and then I'll open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful we can be here this evening. We're thankful that you have provided us with your word. We're thankful that your word reveals to us everything we need to know about life and godliness, and you've given us everything we need. Lord, we pray that as we study tonight that we'll be able to put aside the distractions from the day. We'll be able to put our focus on these eternal truths that are in your word and that we might realize that you always have a plan for our life, that no matter what we're going through, no matter what the difficulties, that there is a plan, and you've outlined that, and many times it's our responsibility to face the issues of life with the doctrine that's in our soul, and as we go through that, then you're glorified, and we grow spiritually. And Father, we pray now that as we study your word, that these truths might be at the forefront of our thinking, pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Open your Bibles to 1 Kings chapter 8. 1 Kings chapter 8. One of the great studies in the Scripture is the presence of God in relation to the human race. From the Garden of Eden, when God is walking with Adam and Eve in the cool of the day in Genesis chapter 2, all the way to the end of Revelation. In Revelation chapter 21, where there is no uh, temple, uh, there's the God is living on the earth with man, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Then uh, that is the our eternal, the eternal, uh, uh, the future plan. So from beginning to end, we see God with man, and we go through various stages. And one of the most important of these is in the temple in the Old Testament, because it is there that God dwells in the midst of His people, Israel, first in the tabernacle and then in the temple itself. And last time, as we got into our study of First Kings, we saw that the focus of the chapters 4 through 7 had to do with Solomon building the temple. And then tonight we're getting into chapter 8, where he begins to... Uh, dedicate the temple, but first he has to move the Ark of the Covenant to the temple in Jerusalem. So let's just kind of orient in terms of the overall structure of our study of First and Second Kings. The first 11 chapters of Kings deals with Solomon. Uh, then the next major division goes from First Kings 12 to Second Kings 17, which covers the period of the divided kingdom. And then the last period is the single kingdom of Judah. We have 40 years 
in the United Kingdom. That's the reign of Solomon, followed by 209 years of the divided kingdom and another 135 years after that. These are the dates. We have David at the beginning in chapter 1, then he dies in chapter 2, followed by the reign of Solomon. 1 Kings 12 to 2 Kings 17, the northern kingdom Israel, the southern kingdom Judah, and then the last part covers the reigns of Hezekiah and Zedekiah. So we are in the first part in this first 11 chapters. We've studied the first two chapters, which focuses on the establishment of Solomon. We saw the Adonijah conspiracy, Solomon's accession to the throne, David's uh, parting words, and, and then his death, and then the subsequent executions dealing with those who are a threat to Solomon's uh, monarchy. Chapter 3 through 8 is the rise of Solomon. There we deal with his marriage to the daughter of Pharaoh, his prayer for wisdom, uh, the way he administers the kingdom. Some of this is is uh, written in more of a topical order than a chronological order, but the focus on these chapters from 3 through 8 is on his rise, his wisdom, and the building of the temple, his building programs, his construction programs, the dedication of the temple in chapter 8, and the glory of Solomon's kingdom at the end of the chapter. Then from chapter 9 through chapter 11, we see the decline of Solomon. He has everything. He is, uh, he is focused on the Lord. He loves the Lord, the Scripture says, God says. And that means that according to the terminology of the Old Testament, to love the Lord means you keep His commandments. Same that we have in the New Testament when Jesus is instructing His disciples in the upper room discourse, he says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. And emphasizing keeping the mandates of Scripture has often been viewed by some people as legalism. Now, that's not legalism. Legalism means you think that by doing what the Scripture says to do, that that gains favor with God and that that is the ultimate cause of divine blessing. What Scripture teaches is that the cause of divine blessing is the imputed righteousness of Jesus Christ, which is the possession of every single believer. We obey God not to get salvation. We obey God not in order to uh, grow, uh, not in order to do these other things. We walk by the Spirit, and it is, it's not a legalistic thing that we have to do this or... Uh, God won't bless us. It is a response for that, that we, we, um, we're obedient, we apply the Scriptures, we walk by the Spirit, and as we take in the Word of God, walk by the Spirit, the result is that we grow spiritually, and the byproduct of that then is spiritual service. So legalism puts a wrong reason and motivation on obedience. It's not emphasizing obedience per se. I've heard people say that when you talk about the fact that Christians ought to read their Bible. Oh, you're just legalistic. Or Christians should give. No, these are the responsibilities of every believer. So Solomon emphasizes what happens with this young man that loves the Lord with all his heart. He's obedient, and then he gets distracted by 
the systems of the world in terms of New Testament terminology, he succumbs to worldliness. He succumbs to the attractions of the world around him, the culture around him, doing things like the other cultures around him do things, and he begins to search for happiness in the details of life. And he goes on this search for happiness, looking for meaning and significance in every area uh, that he can think of, and that's detailed in the book of Ecclesiastes. And he eventually realizes, after he has searched in everything and found emptiness everywhere, that the only happiness that anybody can have is based on their relationship with the Lord and their walk with the Lord. So we see from chapters 9, 10, and 11 what happens when uh, Solomon... Uh, rejects the provision of the Lord. In terms of the uh, structure of these 11 chapters, first two chapters deal with his establishment, three through eight his rise, and then his decline. I think, is that just a, that's a repeat of that slide. I got it in there twice. Okay, chapter eight. What we've seen is that Solomon has gained control of the uh, empire that David had established. He has uh, established his control over the kingdom, and once he does that, once he organizes things, he structures um, the, and divides the kingdom into various districts. They're not not synonymous with the with the tribal uh, areas, but just administrative districts. Then, once he gets things organized, once he uh, gets all of his key people in place and establishes his administration. Then he turns his attention to two major construction projects. The first was the building of the temple, and then secondly, the building of his own palace. And this takes almost 20 years to complete both of these uh, particular projects. When we come to 1 Kings chapter 8, verse 1, after he has completed... The, pro, the temple, and actually when we get into this and look at the details of the chronology in the next chap, in the next verse, rather, not chapter, but the next verse, what we realize is that about 11 months has gone by since the completion of the temple. He completes it in the eighth month of the previous year. The best way to put the details together is that he waits almost a year, he waits 11 months until it comes to the right feast day before he dedicates. He makes, sure, he makes sure that it's done the right time. There's a lot that we're going to see in chapter 8. In fact, it may take us a little bit longer to go through chapter 8 than uh, we, of course, a lot of what happened in the last three chapters was just like reading a blueprint. Uh, it'll take a little bit longer because there's some, some tremendous lessons in chapter 8. One of these lessons has to do with, with worship, the protocol of worship, the importance of doing everything in a certain kind of way, in an extremely appropriate way, because we're not coming to worship somebody who just lives next door, somebody that's that's on the same level that we are. We're infected in this society with this anti-formalism. It's not just a, an emphasis on 
informality. It is uh, an emphasis on anti-formalism, anti-protocol, anti-good manners, and a lot of social etiquette. And, And most people don't know these things anymore. They're never taught good manners. They're never taught anything about etiquette. And then suddenly they find themselves at the age of 25, 26, 27, and they've perhaps done well in school, never wore anything more than blue jeans and a T-shirt, and they show up working for some Fortune 500 company where they get a really good job, but they don't know how to behave in a successful adult professional company. And when they have to go out on business dinners and things like this. They have no idea how to dress. There are people who make, who they, they've created their own careers now just training people in et- social etiquette and how to behave in situations like this because it goes so much against the grain of the training in our culture. And what we see in this whole episode with the ark being brought into the temple and all of the pomp and circumstance that's associated with it. It's not pomp and circumstance and ceremony for the sake of pomp and circumstance and ceremony. I think a lot of people get that impression or they want to think that whenever they see certain kinds of ceremonies, certain kinds of uh, formal national ceremonies that involve uh, heads of state, and they don't understand where all of that uh, protocol comes from and why it's important. And if we do that for a head of state, then, of course, we would do that for God, who is the creator God of the universe. And so there is a certain protocol that's established. Behind the protocol, there are the details of the law of Moses. There's the law related to the Ark of the Covenant and the transportation and care of the Ark of the Covenant. There's laws related to the priesthood, laws related to the high priesthood, laws related to the basic structure of the uh, of the tabernacle and the temple. But within that framework, and actually, and and we could say is based on that framework, we see that there's a a room for initiative on the part of the individual to develop worship apart from divine revelation. And I don't mean in contrast to divine revelation. What I mean is that when we go into the Old Testament and you look at uh, Exodus, you look at the Mosaic Law, you see the detailed descriptions for how everything in the tabernacle has to be constructed. David did the same thing, and I showed you the verses last week, that he had apparently been given revelation from God uh, about how different aspects of the temple were to be constructed. And it gets into certain levels of minutia, not every single thing, but it is more than just sort of a general idea of having a nice building. The building has specific dimensions, and there are certain ways in which the and certain kinds of fabric that the cloth has to be made out of and certain colors of threads that have to be used in embroidering the uh, cherubim onto the veil and there's certain kinds of wood that are supposed to be used and the gold is then laid over the wood so there are these specific details that are given because these elements are all Uh, intended to communicate something, not that Moses 
or David or even any of the priests understood how every detail would foreshadow something in the person and work of Christ. It did. They didn't know necessarily everything. Uh, once you get to the person of the Lord Jesus Christ in the Incarnation, then some things probably became very clear to them, and they understood its significance. But what we come away with is that there is something important about how people worship. Now, you have all those details in the Old Testament and the Mosaic Law related to the construction of the tabernacle, the cloth, the, the uniforms of the priests, every, every detail. But if you notice, there's no instruction on writing hymns. There's no instruction on writing music. There's no instruction on how the choirs or the orchestras that they had would be put together. This is developed once you're functioning within sort of a general framework, then this is an outgrowth of that as they focus on the Lord. So there's room for development within the boundaries that are clearly set by the ritual of the Old Testament. And so you will get into that some in, in our study on worship on Sunday mornings, but we'll see a lot of uh, things related to that in this next uh, chapter. The other thing that we're going to see in this chapter that I'm just beginning to take apart is looking at S Solomon's prayer of dedication that begins in verse 22. Now, we won't get that far tonight, but and I, and I don't want to get there before, since I'm leaving for Kiev tomorrow. Uh, I want to make, I, I don't want to have two weeks interrupt that particular study. But you might want to read ahead into that prayer because this is one of those great examples of what prayer should be. It's a high view of prayer, not the common, informal, quickie kind of prayer that we often uh, have during the day. But if we look at this prayer, think about the way it is constructed. It reflects a tremendous amount of thought on the part of Solomon before he articulates it. He, it's a very lengthy prayer, and I would suggest that he probably wrote it out so that it was said just the way he, he intended to say it. And it is based on Scripture. It's based on Leviticus 26, the five cycles of discipline in Deuteronomy 28 and 29, and Deuteronomy 30. And it's, it doesn't go through each step in the uh, five stages of discipline, but it summarizes them in key points. And the whole prayer is a tremendous example of how a believer can meditate on revealed promises and principles in God's Word and then let the Word of God be the structure and the vocabulary of the prayers that we pray to God. And in that, it is a tremendous example of the uh, faith rest drill because what Solomon is doing in this prayer is going back to what God said, what God promised, both in terms of discipline and in terms of blessing in Leviticus 26 and Deuteronomy 28 to 30. And he is restating that back to God, claiming those promises that, God, you said this, and we're, I want to hold you to that, that if these people are disobedient, 
and then they come back to you and they confess their sin and they turn back to you that you will do what you said to do in the covenant and you will forgive them and bring them back into the land. So as we go through that prayer, it is a tremendous example of how to pray. And it's a great example of how to work through the faith rest drill. And we see this in the Old Testament. And too often we, we live in, in this informal culture in which we, we live in our tradition within what uh, is loosely termed evangelicalism or fundamentalism, but within a general conservative biblical-based, more of what we would call low church than high church, there is this... In informality that often infects our prayers, we rarely get up. You, you don't ever, hardly, you never see me get up and read a prayer that I've written out ahead of time. We come from a tradition that sort of has rejected that as, as too formal, and somehow the reading of a prayer uh, is not as spiritual as something that is uh, impromptu and just at the spur of the moment. And yet what we see in Scripture many times, especially with the Psalms, is this was poetry that was written, granted, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. But does that mean that David didn't work at it? If any of you tried to write poetry or tried to write anything, you know that you write and you rewrite and you rewrite and you rewrite. And the the, the inspiration of the Holy Spirit does not necessarily mean that David just sat down and it just flowed with his stream of consciousness. Because nothing else in the Scripture seems to suggest that somehow we do what God wants us to do, even when it's divinely enabled, apart from work. Because labor is part of, the, of, of God's plan, even though the Holy Spirit filled Aholiab and Bezalel with wisdom and skill to produce the uh, the golden artifacts, the jewelry, the sockets, the settings, everything related to the, the tabernacle and the furniture in the te- temple, did that mean they didn't work at it? Did that mean they didn't sit down and draw out a, a blueprint or a chart or a plan? You know, they're, they're inspired by the Holy Spirit in much the same way that the, that the writers of Scripture were, but does that mean that they didn't uh, get out their rulers and measure everything and make sure that each detail is going to fit t- together correctly. No, no, of course not. We wouldn't. We wouldn't think about it. But uh, we often think that the, they just sat down and Paul or Peter or or David just sort of whipped this off like it just flowed out of the stream of consciousness because it came from the Holy Spirit. But when the Holy Spirit works in tandem with humanity, just like in the incarnation with Jesus Christ, that doesn't mean that it's something that's magical. It still operates through the norms of human thought and human work and human effort. It's just that God is guaranteeing an inspiration that the results of what they wrote were guaranteed free from error. But it doesn't mean that they didn't go through a normal work process of writing and say, oh, well, I don't want to say it that way. I don't want to scratch this out. We're going to say it this way. This is better. But God, the Holy Spirit, is working in and through that process. I think that analogy with the building of the temple with the Holy Abbot Bezalel is a good analogy to help understand that, that these are 
human beings writing. Now, in some ways, and sometimes with inspiration, you have, thus saith the Lord, with certain prophets where it's almost like dictation. But in other cases, it's not that way. But the inspiration of the Holy Spirit meant that the Holy Spirit is overriding what they're doing in such a way as to guarantee that what they write is absolutely true, free from error, and what God intends. But it's done, remember, with their own style, their own vocabulary, their own in terms of their own background, their own personality. You read Luke, you know you're not reading you're not reading Paul, you read the writer of Hebrews, you know you're not reading John. It's very different Greek, different personality comes through, different um, different efforts. So when we look at this, we see uh, we're going to learn a lot of good lessons and good principles are going to be uh, laid out in this chapter. It's a tremendous chapter. Well, it starts off, Solomon has completed the temple. And this about 10 months or 11 months has gone by. And it is time now to bring the Ark of the Covenant up from the city of David, which is in Zion. So we read in verse 1, Then Solomon assembled the elders of Israel and all the heads of the tribes, the leaders of the father's households, of the sons of Israel, to King Solomon in Jerusalem, to bring up the ark of the covenant of the Lord from the city of David, which is Zion. The city of David is a rather small city, as I've pointed out. Up here we have the, where the threshing floor of uh, Aruna was. This is where the temple will be built. This is the palace of David here. But you see, it's, it's not a very large city, and you just have it coming down this finger of a ridge between uh, these two valleys, the, the Kidron Valley over here and the uh, T- uh, Tyropean Valley over here. And originally, it was this lower section down here that is considered Zion. The term Zion, if you read in different places in Scripture, kind of moves around. Once the temple is built up on the Temple Mount, then the Temple Mount becomes Mount Zion. But Zion also is a term that in some places is used to refer to the whole city. And then later as the city expands, this ridge over here to the which is to the west of the old city of David is now called Mount Zion. So you have to pay attention to the context and the historical period as to just exactly what is being referred to uh, as Mount Zion. So that's what is referred to here in 1 Kings 8, that when David had brought the ark into the city, it is located somewhere in the, in the old city of David, and it's not up on the, on the Temple Mount because of all of the construction and everything that's going to uh, take place there and that has taken place there. Okay, let's shift back to the other. So they're going to bring the Ark of the Covenant up. Now, before we get into a lot of development in the chapter, I want to go back and take a look at the significance of the Ark of the Covenant and why this is important. Ever since Spielberg came out with his movie on the Raiders of the Lost Ark back in the early 80s, people have exhibited tremendous 
a curiosity about the Ark of the Covenant. In fact, one a Jewish archaeologist has said not a year goes by that somebody doesn't have a new theory as to where the Ark of the Covenant is located. Everybody gets uh, consumed with this idea. The Ark of the Covenant is first constructed uh, by uh, the Israelites at Mount Sinai, and this is described in Exodus chapter 25, verses 10 through 22. Exodus chapter 25, verses 10 through 22. Because of its close association with God, it is referred to as the Ark of God 34 times in the Old Testament because uh, it is related to the covenant of the Mosaic Covenant that is uh, one copy of which is stored inside the box. It is referred to 31 times as the Ark of the Covenant of Yahweh. So the emphasis here is on the fact that this is the presence of God. The Psalms frequently talk about how God is enthroned upon the wings of the cherub. And that's what this is pictured. This is pictured as the throne of God on earth. That somehow, and, and Solomon uh, refers to this in his prayer, that how can Almighty God, who is larger than the universe, actually come and, and uh, make himself finite and localize himself to the earth? But this is the, the physical location of God and his presence on the earth. He is enthroned among the cherubim. Turn in Exodus chapter 25 verse 10 describes the construction of the ark. And we note the detail that's given here. God is a God of detail. He is not just a God of generalities. You look at anything in the, in the world of creation. Look at animals. Look at plants. Everything is constructed with attention to minutia. And as small as we can go with our microscopes and with various other instruments, we still discover more and more aspects to every living thing and everything in creation, and we see the order and its interrelationship with, um, with, with, with numerous things. So the... God's description of how to build the ark and how to build uh, the instruments for worship in the tabernacle does not escape this particular uh, this particular detail. So the ark is described in Exodus 25. Look at verse 10. They shall make an ark of acacia wood. Two and a half cubits shall be its length. Cubic it was about 18 inches. So uh, two cubits would be about 36 inches, be about 45 inches long. It would be um, about 27 inches wide, and it would be about 27 inches high. And so this is an acacia wood box, and then it's overlaid with pure gold. The wood represents the humanity of Christ, and the gold represents the deity of Christ. Everything in the tabernacle says something about the person or the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. You shall, uh, verse 12, you shall cast four rings of gold for it. So there, it's not pictured in this picture, but there would be a ring on each corner and, uh, 
two rings on one side, two rings on the other side. You shall make poles of acacia wood, overlay them with gold. You shall put the poles into the rings on the sides of the ark, that the ark may be carried by them. So God gives specific instructions as to how to carry the ark, how to, when the camp is going to break down, how they are to cover the ark, who is to carry the ark. All of this is specified uh, in the Mosaic Law. Verse 16, you shall put into the ark of testimony, which I will give you. Uh, then uh, the top, the, the cover, the lid of the box is described in verse 17. You shall make a mercy seat of pure gold. Two and a half cubits shall be its length and a cubit and a half its width to fit uh, precisely on top of the box, you shall make two cherubim of gold of hammered work. You shall make them at two ends of the cherubim. And all of this speaks of the propitiatory work of Christ on the cross where the righteousness and justice of God is satisfied. Inside of the ark would be placed the uh, tablets of the law. Also, and there's some, in the second point, we'll look at some of the issues there, but there's some discussion about just whether the manna or Aaron's rod were placed in the ark or before the ark. Different prepositions are used in different places. So there's some debate as to just exactly uh, how that uh, how that happened or how, how it looked. But the picture here is inside the ark, the uh, Ten Commandments, the tablets of the law, broken, indicating that man has sinned, and as the cherubs associated with the holiness, the justice, the righteousness of God look upon that, they see the sin of man, and yet the blood of the lamb that was without spot or blemish is placed on the mercy seat once a year on the Day of Atonement as a picture of the future atoning work of Jesus Christ on the cross, where our propitiatory work of Jesus Christ on the cross, where the holiness and righteousness and justice of God uh, would be satisfied. This was placed inside the uh, tent of meeting, which is the holy place, subdivided into two compartments of the of the inner holy of holies and the outer holy place, and then outside was the uh, altar and the uh, laver. In the after the ark, the uh, ark was placed inside of the holy place in the Old Testament. Then God came down in His uh, cloud of glory to symbolize, so that all the Jews could see that He took His place, His residence, in the holy of holies. Exodus twenty-five, verse eight, He says. Let them construct for me a sanctuary. Now, this is an important term. Sanctuary comes from the same root that holiness comes from. It has to do with that which is set apart. And this is a key concept in, in worship. It's a key concept in the Christian life. The Hebrew word kadosh has to do with not moral purity. That's a secondary idea. The fundamental idea of that which is set apart to the service of God. There's something distinct about this area because this is for the worship and the service of the Lord. It is not something that is every day. So you don't treat it with the same level of informality, the same level of casualness that you treat everything else because the uh, tent of meeting and all of the instruments there are all 
uh, kadosh, they are all sanctified as unto the Lord, because it is here, Exodus 25:22, that I will meet with you, God says, and from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim which are upon the ark of the testimony, I will speak to you about all that I give you in commandment for the sons of Israel. So the first point is simply the creation and the description of the Ark of the Covenant, Exodus 25, verses 10 to 22. Its construction is described in Exodus 37, 1 through 9. The second point deals with the uh, things that were placed in the Ark. And here we have a picture of the inside of a of a uh, reconstructed ark. We have the tablets of the law, Aaron's rod that budded, and then a, a golden jar that contained manna. Upon Moses' order after the rebellion at um, Meribah, Aaron was instructed to put two quarts of manna in a jar and place it before the law, before the law, uh, before the testimony in the temple as a memorial to God's provision. Uh, Hebrews 9.4 adds that this jar rested inside of the ark. So there's this difference in the preposition. So perhaps there was a time when it was in the ark and another time when it's kept uh, before the ark. In 1 Kings 8.9, the passage that we're studying the only thing that's left is the two tablets. The Aaron's rod and the manna have apparently either been lost or they have been uh, mis- misplaced or just in all the, all the uh, chaos of the period of the judges, they're no longer there. Hebrews 9.4 says, Having a golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant covered on all sides with gold, which in which, in the preposition in, in uh, Greek means to be inside of, in which was a golden jar holding the manna, Aaron's rod which budded, and the tablets of the covenant. The third point is that there were specific regulations in the Mosaic law regarding travel with the ark. These are given in Numbers chapter 4 verses 5 through 6, in Deuteronomy chapter 10 verse 8, and Deuteronomy 31:25, it was to be covered in a in a specific way. Only Levites, only the sons of Aaron, and then only Levites could carry the ark. They were to carry. They weren't to touch the ark. They were to take the the poles that were permanently kept through the rings in the ark. They were to carry the ark by means of those poles, but they were not supposed to touch the ark uh, itself. So point number three covers those specific travel regulations. Point number four, when traveling through the wilderness, the desert through the 40 years, the people moved. When the people moved, the ark always went before the people. It always led the procession. God always went before the people. The pillar of fire at night, the cloud by day indicated his presence. Fifth point, when they entered into the land... In Joshua chapter 3, verses 6 through 17, it's described that the priests, the Levites, took the ark and they walked toward the river uh, Jordan. 
And at that point, the River Jordan, which now is just hardly hardly a brook to walk across, but at that point it was still a very strong, wide river, and it was in the springtime, remember, and as they came to enter into land, there's this fast-flowing river, and they were to step into the river. And and it wasn't that the river would stop and then they would step into it. It wasn't like at the Red Sea where Moses would hold up up his staff and the, and, the, and the river would part and then they would walk across. They had to walk right there to the edge. And the water is still rushing by and they're going to take that true step of faith, putting out their foot and as their foot lowered, the water lowered. And when their foot hit the ground, the ground was dry and the river wasn't running anymore. So it was a, tr- a test of their faith and trust in God to do exactly what he said to, not to trust their senses, not to put their ultimate reliance on their empirical senses, but to trust in the Word of God to walk by faith and not by sight. And so under the fifth point, they enter into the land and they're also told in Joshua chapter 3 that the body of the Israelites were not to come within 2,000 cubits, that's 3,500 feet, of the Ark of the Covenant. So the Ark was to go first, go into the river, cross the river, come out the other side before the body of the Israelites would then follow them. And so most of us are familiar with what happens at that point. They go, they cross the River Jordan, they get organized on the other side. They're told to set up a a cairn of 12 stones to memorialize how God has led them into the promised land. And then begins the conquest. This is point number six. What happens to the ark during the conquest? Well, the only time that it's mentioned per se in, in the rest of the book of Joshua, we know the ark is there. The ark is with the army everywhere that they went. But we know specifically that the priests carried the ark uh, before the people as they marched around the walls of Jericho. And that's the last time that the ark is specifically mentioned in the book of Joshua. So then, what happens to the ark? We need to look at the further history of the ark as to what happens during the remaining years. This is about 1400, 1405, 1406 B.C. when they go into the land. And the time that we're talking about with, with Solomon is 966. So, 480 years has gone by since this or excuse me, 440 years has gone by since uh, they entered into the land and what has been going on with the ark. It's an interesting story. God traveled a lot during those 400 years. He didn't stay in one place. And there's some interesting lessons there. So point number seven, from the period of the judges to Samuel, the ark is located at the city of Bethel. Now here is a map of the central part of the promised land, the central part of Israel. This is the Dead Sea on the right, the River Jordan flowing into it. Jerusalem is located here. The distance from Jerusalem uh, to the uh, Dead Sea is about 40 miles. 
just to give you a little perspective. So uh, Bethel is about 30 miles north of Jerusalem as you get into the hill country in the central highlands of the tribe of, uh, of Ephraim. And this is where the ark stayed through uh, much of the period of the, of, the, of the judges. This is where Phineas, Phineas, the son of Eliezer, was the high priest, and the tabernacle was there, and this is where people came to sacrifice. This is where they celebrated the feasts at, at, um, at Bethel. By Not much else is said. That's, there's only one reference in Judges to the Ark. And the eighth point, by Samuel's time, the Ark has been moved north to the village of Shiloh. The Ark is located at Shiloh, and we only know this because of the incident that occurs in 1 Samuel chapter 4. This is, describes what happens when the Philistines defeat the uh, Israelites at the Battle of Aphek, and the Ark is captured. And we know from 1 Samuel chapter 4, verse 3, that the ark had been at Shiloh, and the people are going to take the ark and use it to try to gain victory over the Philistines. The problem is they're trying to use God like a good luck charm. And this is exactly what happens with a lot of Christians. They think that somehow God is nothing more than a talisman, a good luck charm, a lucky rabbit's foot. And if they carry their Bible with them, wear a cross, go to church once a week, then somehow God's going to be impressed by that and take care of them. And rather than have a right relationship with God, which they did not have during the period of uh, of the uh, at the end of the judges, everyone was doing what was right in their own eyes. They had completely caved in to moral relativism, and because of that, they were under divine discipline. And it's interesting what God, how God disciplines them, because they go to the ark, think, go to the uh, the tabernacle and get the ark, thinking that if they bring the ark into battle, just like at Jericho and Ai and all the other battles in the glory days under Joshua, they're going to have victory over the Philistines, and the Philistines uh, wipe them out. They go into a massive retreat. They lose the ark. The ark is captured, and this is such a devastating victory that when Eli hears about it, who's the high priest, the corrupt high priest at the time, he is pictured as this corpulent, decadent high priest. He falls off his stool and dies instantly. Uh, His two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, uh, also are killed in the battle, and the ark is lost, and Israel feels as if they are, uh, they've lost God. But that hasn't happened. God is just different. God's, well, the principle we learn here is God is powerful enough to take care of himself and to protect himself without our help. So the uh, pagan Philistines get the ark. First Samuel 4, 10, 10 and 11, we're told the Philistines fought. Israel was defeated. Every man fled to his tent. The slaughter was very great, for they fell of Israel, 30,000 foot soldiers, and the ark of God was taken. The two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, died. And then, in, um, then we go through this very interesting episode where the ark is then taken by the Philistines. Let me go back to our map. Where the ark is taken by the Philistines in 1 Samuel uh, chapter 5. So turn with me there to 1 Samuel chapter 5. This is also one of those very humorous episodes 
in the Bible that that um, people get a real chuckle. I see that the Holy Spirit has a tremendous sense of humor, and it and, and I remember you, it's been about twenty years since I taught First Samuel and went through the Hebrew, and the Hebrew is extremely earthy in its description. In fact, uh, the King James translators, most translators clean it up just a little bit because uh, there are some things that are said that are a little uncomfortable in mixed company or if you have kids in the congregation. But it is an extremely earthy description of things that are, uh, that are going on. So let's just kind of look at a couple of things here. In 1 Samuel chapter chapter 5. So the Philistines took the ark of God and brought it from Ebenezer to Ashdod. Ashdod is located here near the coast, which is in what is currently referred to as the Gaza Strip. That's the area along the uh, southwestern border of Israel, right on the Great Sea, where the there's so much fighting now with the pa- Palestinians. So in the The Philistines took the ark of God. They brought it into the house of Dagon, the temple of, actually it should be pronounced Dagon, to the temple of Dagon, and they set it by Dagon. Now, he is this uh, fertility god. Dagon is, in the Philistine pantheon, the father of Baal. And Baal later sort of takes over the pantheon, much as in Greek mythology, Zeus overthrows Uranus. And this is the same kind of thing. You have this in all the different mythological systems in the ancient world. You have this overthrow of the older god, and there was a Jesuit priest by the name of Wilhelm Schmidt back in the 1920s wrote a six-volume work in French. It's been abridged and translated into English in one volume, where he went investigated... Uh, origins of every religious system that they were aware of in the 1920s and traced every one of them back to a central deity like Dagon or Uranus or El in the Canaanite pantheon to show that every religious system started in monotheism and then deteriorated into polytheism. They all started with this strong, powerful, singular God who's then overthrown by his, by this son that uh, leads a revolt against him, sort of sounds like the angelic conflict a little bit in Lucifer rebelling against God. Not that Lucifer was God's son. That's not a biblical doctrine, but that's the idea. You see that there is some faded memory of, of the angelic conflict within these uh, mythological systems. So Dagon is a huge, huge uh, statue of him in the temple. And the next morning, the people rise early in the morning. They can't wait to see what happens as they've taken this lowly Hebrew god that they think they've defeated and put him in the temple. And they come in the next day, and Dagon is bowing down to uh, the Ark of the Covenant. And they are just astonished at that, that he's fallen down on his face as if he is, is worshiping the ark, of the, uh, the ark of the Lord. So they take him up and they set him up again. Their God has to be manually set up. The next morning they come back early in the morning to see what else has happened. And this time uh, they're 
uh, idol has been decapitated and his hands are off. What God is showing in the first instance is that he and he alone is worthy of worship and all of these false gods will eventually bow down to him. In the second instance, what he is showing is that the false gods of the Philistines, Dagon specifically, can't think and can't act. His head's cut off, his hands are cut off, indicating he has, he can't think, he can't act. So, the people there become somewhat upset, and that verse 6 says that the hand of the Lord was heavy upon them. And nine times in this section, the writer uses this phrase, the hand of the Lord, and it is a, a figure of speech for the power of God. And the people recognize that the negative circumstances that they were experiencing came directly from God. So the hand of God was heavy on the people of Ashdod. In verse 6, he ravaged them, struck them with tumors. Now, if you remember the King James, King James translated hemorrhoids. It was always one of those things to chuckle. What most scholars believe is that these were buboes. Now, we were talking last night whether that's where we get our term bobo or not. I don't know. But buboes is what is these sores, these ulcers that are created with the bubonic plague. And that is what many people believe occurred at this time, was an outbreak of the bubonic plague. Of course, it was divinely instigated. And it would be supported by the fact that when the Philistines eventually send the ark back, they make these little golden uh, tumors to imitate the tumors that they had and golden mice and rodents, of course, uh, have fleas that spread the bubonic plague. We know that now, so apparently they were making some sort of uh, connection like that. So the Ashdodites decide that they need to get rid of uh, the God of Israel, so they decide to send it over to Ekron. Now, if you were an Ekronite, wouldn't you just think that those people in uh, Ashdod were your best friends? They don't want the ark any more than the uh, Ashdodites do. So the ark goes from uh, Ashdod to Gath to Ekron, and at Ekron, the people are quite dismayed that they have uh, now the the ark of the covenant there, and they they believe that God is, the God of Israel is going to kill them. And verse eleven, they have this. Uh, Convocation of all the, the the five lords of the Philistines from the five cities, and they implore them to send the ark back to Israel. So they're going to return the ark, and the total we're told in chapter six, verse one, is that it was in the uh, land of the Philistines for uh, six years. Now, there's three principles we learn from this. Principle number one is God is never defeated. It may look like God is defeated. It may look like the end of the world, but God is never defeated. God is in control. The Israelites were defeated because of their carnality, but God wasn't defeated. And so God is demonstrating by what he is doing among the Philistines that he's very much alive, very much involved, very powerful, and that he wasn't defeated at the battle of Aphek, only the the Jews were defeated at the Battle of Aphek. God is never defeated, though God's people, because of sin, may be defeated. Second principle we learn is that God is greater than anything in history. 
There is nothing in history that is more powerful than God, and whatever is thrown against him by whatever system, whatever civilization, whatever uh, philosophical system, God is always greater. And so God is never defeated. And the third thing that we learn is that God doesn't need man to protect him. God doesn't need man to defend him. God is capable of taking care of himself, and even though he is has been captured by the uh, pagan Philistines and he is suffering all of this ridicule, he manages to earn respect from the pagans without any help from the priests or prophets in Israel. He can take care of himself. Well, just make sure you have your points right. The eighth point was by Samuel's time, the ark's at Shiloh, First Samuel 4.3. Ninth point, the ark is captured by the Philistines at the Battle of Aphek. That's First Samuel 4.11. Tenth point, the ark is first taken to Ashdod, where it's placed in the temple of Dagon, or Dagon in First Samuel 5. And the eleventh point is the return of the ark. They, uh, the Philistines have these offerings. They make these images of golden mice and tumors. They, then they do something interesting. They decide, well, just in case this really isn't such a supernatural thing, let's sort of make a uh, test for this. And so they, they, they uh, make a new cart, and they take two milk cows. Now, a milk cow is a mother cow who's not trained to, to pull a cart. So when you take two of them that have never been hitched together and hitch them together, what's the normal tendency going to be? One's going to go this way and one's going to go that way. And to complicate things for the cows, as milk cows, they have calves that haven't been weaned. So mamas want to go back to the calves. So the natural normal thing is for these two cows to go in opposite directions and to go find their they're calves who I'm sure are making some noise about the need for milk. But instead, they work in perfect harmony and they take the cart with the ark to Beth Shemesh. And the Beth Shemites uh, rejoice when they see the ark returned. And we see this described in 1 Samuel 6.13. Now the people of Beth Shemesh were reaping their wheat harvest in the valley and they raised their eyes and saw the ark and were glad to see it. Verse 15, we're told that the Levites took down the ark of the Lord, the box that was with it, in which were the articles of gold, and put them on the large stone. And the men of Beth Shemesh offered burnt offerings and sacrificed sacrifices that day to the Lord. Notice, they made sure that Levites handled the ark. They did it according to appropriate protocol. But they got a little curious in the process. And in 1 Samuel 6, 19 to 20, where'd it go? We're told that God struck down some of the men of Beth Shemesh because they looked into the ark of the Lord. He struck down of all the people. Now, a lot of English texts say 50,070 men. I doubt there were that many in Beth Shemesh. There's a textual problem there. The best reading is that he struck down 70 men, and the people mourned because the Lord had struck the people with a great slaughter. And the men of Beth Shemesh said, Who is able to stand before the Lord, the holy God, and to whom shall he go up from us? This is in 1 Samuel 6, 19-20. Well, the, the Beth Shemites then are quite fearful, so they send it 
to Kiriath-Jerim. And Kiriath-Jerim, we're getting very near the end of our saga here. Kiriath-Jerim is located to the northeast of Beth Shemesh, about halfway between there and the area of Mizpah Ramah, where Samuel was from, and there it is going to uh, stay for about 20 years. They take it to the house of Abinadab, who is a, a Levite, and they consecrate his son Eliezer, who is to look to look after the ark and to take care of things there. Abinadab is the father of three sons, Eliezer, Ahio, and Uzzah. And the ark stays there until David comes to get the ark in 2 Samuel 6, verses 6 and 7. The only thing that happens is that the ark is taken into battle at the Battle of Michmash in 1041 B.C., according to 1 Samuel 14:21. The ark stays in Kiriath-Jerim. It's also called Baal-Judah until David moves it. This is point number 12 until David moves it in 2 Samuel chapter 6. And he follows protocol, except Uzzah, one of the sons, reaches out to stabilize the ark when it's being carried in the, in the cart, and the, they hit a bump in the road, and the cart jostles, and the ark jostles, and he reaches out his hand to try to stabilize God. And, of course, that is a violation of the law. He dies instantly. David becomes a little fearful, stores the uh, ark for three months at the house of the Levite, Obed-Edom, according to 2 Samuel 6:11. It is during this time that various psalms are written, and you see the beginning of uh, the, the choirs and the orchestra and the singing of psalms in relation to the ark and the enthronement of God upon the ark. That is our worship uh, connection to the doctrine of worship. It is after three months that David then transports the ark to Mount Zion. Some of the psalms are Psalm 3, verse 4, Psalm 9, 11, and it's described in 2 Samuel chapter 7. The ark stays there even though during the Absalom revolt, Abiathar wants to take the ark with David. David insists that it stays there, and it stays on Mount Zion near where the temple will be, though the altar and the tabernacle are north at at uh, Gibeon. Gibeon is located about where the J on Kiriath-Jerim is located in that map. That's where the, the, temp, the, the tabernacle was located, so they're separate uh, during much of the, uh, the end part of David's reign and until the temple is finished. And then the temple is completed, and in 1 Kings 8, 1, Solomon transfers the ark from the city of Zion up to the Temple Mount, and we will come back when I get back from Kiev, and we will look at that, come back and talk a little bit about the worship aspects of this, because this is fascinating to see how the Israelites under... David and then under Solomon developed this extremely formal, sophisticated, and organized structure for music. It's not just some sort of haphazard, uh, impromptu.
kind of thing. There, for some reason in our society, we run into this again and again. People think that God the Holy Spirit uh, must work at, at the last minute. It, it, we have to remain, uh, ha- have to keep a certain amount of flexibility because the Holy Spirit might lead us differently tomorrow. Uh, why can't the Holy Spirit lead us to do something six months ago so that we can plan, organize, rehearse, and do something of true substance and value for the Lord, why do we have to think that the Holy Spirit only works at the last minute? Let's bow our heads in closing prayer. Father, thank you for this opportunity to study your word because it gives us a great insight into who you are, into your plans, into just the details of, uh, of, your, of worship for you because we see how detailed the instructions are in the Old Testament related to the Mosaic Law. We see how detailed the instructions are related to the care of the ark. And all of this relates, of course, to the fact that your presence was there. And today your presence, your indwelling presence, is in each and every believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. And it tells us that there's something distinct and unique about every believer that's different from any other time in history. Father, we pray that you challenge us with what we've learned tonight. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.